Coming to you from high atop our San Francisco Bay Area studios, this is Tech Move, and this is episode 17, where in today's episode we talk about Keith's latest disaster, one of many of course, Rod enters the 21st century with an SSD upgrade, and we come to you with a very special interview with Eric Kessler the founder of KesslerCrane.com. We've got that and much, much more here on our latest episode of Tech Move. Let's go. Everyone, my name is Rod Louie, and with me is my illustrious co-host Keith Moreau. Keith, how's it going there? Very good, Rod. Thank you. It has been really about a year uh, since we've done a brand new episode, and you know what? We're still not doing a real brand new episode. <laughs> but hey, you know what? Beggars can't be choosers. Is that right, Keith? Yeah, I'm you can't. Sure you, can't sure. you, 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 you can't. You know why? Because when the opportunity presents itself, that's when you record. And that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're recording a year's worth of episodes in one evening. <laughs> that's right. Snippet after snippet is going to be, you're going to be in the editing room till who knows when. This is great. Anyway, folks, we want to apologize for not being with you a little bit sooner and more regular. Uh, but as you might have heard in episode 16, a lot of things going on in the personal lives of Rod Louie and Keith Moreau. Uh, and we have now settled those issues and uh, paid out enormous sums of money to keep those things quiet. And uh, now we're back online, ready to do our thing, wouldn't you say? We are definitely back. We're back. We're back, and we're ready to roll. And uh, we have so much, you know, Keith and I were talking, we were having our one of our various production meetings that we often have, and uh, we were talking about all this great stuff that we have for the podcast that we still need to share with our listening audience. And so that's what we're doing right now. We have a lot of stuff that we recorded sometime last year. And uh, it, it just it, it hasn't presented itself to be able to share with you <laughs> up until now. Today's your day. Today's the lucky day, folks. Today is your lucky day. <laughs> boy, boy, are you lucky. <laughs> and boy, are you lucky. <laughs> Anyway, so we've got a lot of stuff in store for you today because we have some terrific discussions going on, and uh, not only from just kind of catching up over the last year, but what I'm really excited about is this terrific interview that Keith had conducted with the great Eric Kessler of uh, of the uh, Kessler uh, fame. Uh, he, he's the gentleman who has started the company that does all this great uh, uh, gear for us uh, filmmakers and and people who 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 uh, 
uh, use, you know, camcorders, cameras, whatever you want to call it, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, I've I've actually got a bunch of his gear that I bought over the years. I think the first piece of gear I might have bought in 2010. So it was a, a Cinecrane or Cine Slider. Cine Slider. Five, I yeah, remember five, that. Five foot slider. Yeah. Yeah. You, and then I. You, you know, let let, let let me just say that, you know, uh, a lot of our folks out there know that I am a cheapskate. And so, uh, you know, the things that I have DIY, like my slider, like my. Uh, um, what's that thing called? Crane? Not, Jib? Jib. Is it is it the jib the, the jib yeah it's a jib okay <laughs> yeah that thing that thing that you you and your my and my your, brother-in-law your brother-in-law made right that's a jib okay so the slider <laughs> the jib uh my my little steady cam that 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 I made all that stuff I have to say started out with the Kessler kind of like trying to copy them and, and see what little things they have. Of course, not holding one ever in my hand, but just looking at the pictures and seeing, hey, you know, maybe I could do so. Of course, it'd be an absolute disaster and be nothing like that fi- finished product. Well, the thing about the Kessler stuff is that it's really solid. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's really solid. It's 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 not the lightest stuff out there, and, and they're, they're getting... They're, they actually are getting a lot of competition with other makers and overseas um, stuff from China, but their stuff really holds up. The thing that I really like about about the company Kessler, and I think it's mostly because of Eric, but it's probably other people there too, um, is they're really innovating a lot with motion control and stuff like that. So they they um, you know in, in the past you could just manually move something along the slider and kind of push it and that's usually the easiest thing you, you know you set up you don't want to have a bunch of electronic stuff you just kind of set your camera on the thing and then and then slide it or move it manually but they've they've really pioneered a kind of motion control stuff that's repeatable so you can you can really use this stuff for automating movement so you don't actually have to push it at a, at a rate because really it's it's pretty nerve-wracking to push a slider perfectly oh absolutely Absolutely. And, and, I mean, like, they, I, I know that when I try to do my, you know, my own, you know, I mean, you're, you're just shaking, you know, the, the, the wheels kind of catch on something. So you get a little jar here and there in your shot. It's yeah. tough. It's tough to yeah. do. Yeah. It's just hard to keep it even. I mean, you can do it. It takes practice. Yeah. Um, the thing about and a the, lot of motor oil on the tracks. <laughs> it just takes some interesting techniques to get the, the manual slider moves. But um, so Kessler came out with a new product called the Second Shooter, which is pretty cool, and it's based on a really um, sophisticated technology, CineDrive, that they developed about a year before. But the CineDrive thing, I think, was too much for people. It was, it was too complicated and, and too expensive, so they came up with kind of a scaled-down version of the CineDrive. Um, and so this interview that I had with Eric Kessler is a little bit before they made their first release of the Second Shooter. And uh, so he talks about that and, and other stuff about his business philosophy, how he started. And he's he's like the, you know, we're talking about our DIY stuff. He's like the ultimate DIY. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, he was, yeah, he was like uh, designed uh, industrial stuff. And then just on a lark, well, you'll, you'll hear the story. But basically he got into the filmmaking um, technology in kind of a roundabout way. 
and 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 the rest is history. Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting story, and uh, you know, I know that you know for myself, you know, again, who who does the DIY, that you know, you uh, when when he took it to that next level, right? That just where he was able to build a company out of it and be very successful, and now everyone, you know, would kill to have at least one of his products there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I, I love the stuff. I, I, you know, I drool over it when I go to the website. It's really beautiful stuff. So, um, so Rodney, so we're going to be uh, playing this interview after this initial segment. But you have some, you have actually some pretty big news from your point of view, which, which is yes, you, you actually made a huge addition to your computer system. I did, and I, and uh, as you affectionately like to call it, I've moved into the twenty first century. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have done that. Uh, part of the time off uh, that I had, I was able to upgrade my 2000 and was it my 2010 iMac uh, to an SSD drive. Ooh! And uh, and I did this with the uh, help of uh, our friends over at OWC, Otherworld Computing, mm-hmm. and I bought one of their kits. Uh, that essentially takes out the internal optical drive of the iMac and replaces it with a solid-state drive. And so that's exactly what I did. I sacrificed my optical drive, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I put in this 250-gig uh, SSD drive. At the same time, uh, replacing the actual internal 3.5-inch drive uh, that came with it, which was, of course, a one terabyte drive. I upgraded that to a two terabyte drive. So I'm just loaded with all kinds of space right now. Wow, that's great. It's great. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it and it boots it bu- boots beautifully, very, very quick. I think I timed it as like, I don't know, 15, 17 seconds from the time of the boing to uh, to the time the desktop uh, uh, comes up. It's 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 super awesome. I really love it. It really changes your experience, doesn't it? It does. It, it really does. And it's so quiet, and it, yeah. and, and, and it's very responsive. It, it's really, really very, very nice. And, you know, you have this, it's probably a false sense of security, but it just feels so much more stable than, like, the spinning drives that we're so used to. Yeah. Yeah, it's really an amazing improvement. What a what a SSD can do. Yeah. Well, well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and uh, just on a little side note for anyone who cares, uh, so because I sacrificed my optical drive, I had to get a uh, an external uh, Blu-ray uh, uh, reader writer uh, just so that I could have an optical drive uh, when I need it. And uh, what did I buy? Hang on, I have it right here. Let me let me stare at this thing. It's a Samsung. It's mm-hmm. a Blu-ray player. It's uh, cool. Really, is it one of the really thin ones? Yeah, it, it's uh-huh. it's a portable one. It's uh-huh. uh, it's the SE five hundred six Blu-ray, and it works really great. Uh, you know, um, I think that might be the one that may be the one that I have. Really? Yeah. I mean, is, is yeah, yeah. That's the one I have too. Oh, really? The, Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you listened to my recommendation. <laughs> I think it got some good reviews. It so did. And, and, why we and chose you know it. the price point was just right. It was mm-hmm. it was it was it's it's terrific. It it works great. Reads everything, writes everything. Hey. 
You know? Yeah, I was I was actually surprised. It actually reads rewritable fifty gigabyte Blu-rays. Oh, is that right? I have not yeah. tried that yet. I've not yeah, tried. Sometimes that. I'll 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 make I'll, sometimes I'll make Blu-rays, you know, copies of Blu-rays, and uh, my old my older um, OWC Blu-ray writer did not want to uh, read and write on the fifty gigabyte ones. It would only do the 25s. Oh, And then okay. I got this one, right. and it actually worked. Oh, great. So. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's, uh, you know, it just keeps improving, improving, improving. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the, I, I love it. it. It works great. For for the few times that I've had to use it, it, it works really, really well. And so, uh, so as far as missing my internal drive on my iMac... Um, I don't, I don't really miss it at all. I mean, it was nice because it was an all in one thing and I had one less thing on my desk. Eh, that's okay. Yeah. For this SSD, it's worth it. That's great. Yeah. Um, I think you've given your, your iMac a little bit more life. That's great. Oh, and also not to mention, I was finally able to update to Yosemite <laughs> instead yeah, of running like, be... I don't know, what was I running like? 10.5? Yeah. Oh, I think it was 10.4 actually. <laughs> I think it was like 10.4. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty 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 terrible. So, you know, wow. I, I I couldn't install any type of new software at all. Oh, you need to upgrade to at least 10.7. At least ah shut up, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah. You know. So. And, and you're liking Yosemite? Oh, I I I do. I like it very much. And you know what really works well is that I use Parallels too, right, to run my right. my uh my Windows uh applications. Mm-hmm. And the integration between those two that, you know, the whole virtual machine thing really is very, very nice, very seamless, works great. That's great. Yeah, it's really good. So happy that I made the move. Uh, very pleased with that. And um, and, and I really kind of uh, uh, took the, the uh, what you had talked about because you had talked about the same thing, uh, doing that yourself and how you could not go back to any type of boot drive that was non-SSD, and uh, now I see why. Yeah. Yeah, it really changes your perspective. It does. Uh, so y- you, you, mentioned, know, you were mentioning that you uh, basically kind of did a clean wipe of your of your system because you yes. just wanted to eliminate the cruft. I, I, and so you're, you're not having to reinstall a lot of apps when you use them for the first time. Right. You have to find them. Yeah. Yes. So I can relay a little kind of a... a, a, a a version of that, from my point of view, that was that I had to do, but it was actually unintended. <laughs> it's like a disaster. So, can we classify this as another Keith disaster here? It was a mini disaster. Good. We need one of those to to kind of kick off this uh, our, our our relaunch of the podcast. The thing about my disasters is they always have a happy ending. <laughs> I don't know they about really... that. Is that really true? <laughs> I, well, so far they <laughs> they seem really really bad, but eventually everything's okay. Right. <laughs> So anyway, I was so the, actually this kind of has to do with SSDs. So I have um, I have this PCI SSD inside my my Mac Pro, which is super fast and it's great because it actually is even a little bit faster than a than a, a SATA SSD. So SATA is the kind of interface that goes into a computer. It's very fast, but but if you can put a, a, a SSD on the PCI bus, which is actually connected to the processor and memory directly rather than some serial interface it's actually even faster right so uh, anyway that's what I have but I also have an uh, in the in the old days before I got this PCI SSD I actually had a SATA SD like you have and um, I, it was a 240 gigabyte and and it was a little bit small to do uh, backups to um, 
so I would I would actually do a kind of a safety backup, backing up my 480 PCI SSD to the 240. But the 240 was always running out of space because I had a little bit too much on the 480. So I had this brilliant idea of, well, why don't I store the apps uh, or certain things, the app the app folder, instead of on my uh, instead of storing the applications and copying those all all those over onto my 240 SSD. Why don't I save space by just copying my data over and putting something called a kind of like a, something called a sim link? It's like an alias, and and I think you probably know what an alias is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a pointer. Couldn't tell you what it is, but I but I <laughs> but I've heard of it. Sure. Well, like when you create a um like on the Mac, when you create an alias to something, you you can create an alias and put it on your desktop or right. some some location that's convenient. Sure. Like the dock is kind of like a bunch of aliases. It's not the real thing is there. It's not stored there. Just a pointer to it is. Right. Almost so, like a shortcut type of thing. Yeah. It's like a shortcut. So you could actually have an alias that resides on one drive, but the actual data that it's pointing to is on another drive. And, and you could save space that way. So I was kind of doing something, what I thought was clever, by creating a sim link on my 240 gig drive. But actually, it was pointing to a uh, uh, an area of another drive so that when I did my backup from my 480 to my 240, I wasn't copying everything over. I was oh, only right. copying my important data and the startup stuff. So anyway, so I did all this stuff, and I looked up on the internet about how to do it with the sim links and... And so I did this procedure, and <laughs> and then when I looked at my 480 uh, PCI applications folder, it was totally blank. <laughs> <laughs> that, I didn't, that's, somehow, that's kind of a freak out right there. Yeah. Somehow, through this procedure, I had actually deleted all my applications. <laughs> like, every single application. And I didn't have a backup because my 240 gig was the backup. Right. So I had no applications. My only backup was, f- like, from... A year and a half ago of all my apps like maybe a year and a half to two years ago yeah so basically and for you that's not anywhere near current <laughs> no um yeah so basically for the last few months i've just been every time i need to use an app that i haven't used before i have to install it i have to locate it download it install it hopefully i have the registration for it <laughs> <laughs> like today when we did Call Recorder. Right. Call Recorder is the app we use to record uh, Skype calls. Yes. I didn't have it. <laughs> oh, is is, is uh, today the, the, the first day you're reinstalling uh, Call Recorder? Yeah. Well, I tried to... I tried, I launched... First of all, I launched Skype, and Skype was like from 2005. It was like a really old version that's on a really old drive that I have on my system. Right. So, so that was... Skype was one of the apps that was gone. So I had to install Skype, the new version of Skype. And then Call Recorder wasn't in there because it was deleted with all my other apps. So then I had to download, find out where to f- locate Call Recorder, download it, register it, all that stuff, install it. So that's an example. Yeah. Uh, but I, that's but I just feel like much the same mo- like me. Yeah, just like you. Yeah. Yours was by choice. Mine was by <laughs> stupidity. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, and, and that's the funny thing. You know, it's like backing up some of this stuff is, 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 is really important. What I did, though, before I did my um, uh, wipeout was that I I essentially took a screenshot of my applications folder and printed it out and highlighted the ones that I knew I was going to use again. Mm-hmm. And, and then and then just did not reinstall the ones that 
I hardly touch or I'm not using anymore, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that really did save me a, 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 a whole bunch of, you know, installation, reinstallation, finding this, finding that. That's great. So in, in that way, that was pretty good. But uh, yeah, it can be a little disheartening when, when especially you, I'm sure, who has, uh, you know, invested a lot of dough in your uh, in your applications to not find them anymore. <laughs> that's a tough thing. Yeah, and have to reinstall them. The thing that's kind of cool, though, is that most of the time the data for the application, the th- like the preferences and things, aren't aren't in the applications folder. Right. They're they're in a different folder. So usually when I reinstall an app that that was gone, that was deleted, usually it's set up the same way. Like the registration works and everything else works. So it's it's not like I I really lost the personality of the app that I created over time. Just <laughs> just the app itself. So. <laughs> well, that is great. Well, yeah. uh, it, it looks like you and I have had uh, uh, plenty of excitement over this last year. And, uh, you know, it's going to be en- uh, enough to share over the next few episodes. And, you know, we'll get into more so- uh, of this stuff. You know, we'll probably go into more detail about these things in upcoming episodes. And um, so, uh, you know, a lot of stuff to look forward to, Keith. We actually have a lot of stuff to look forward to this year. There's been a whole year of acquisitions and developments and other things. All technology has moved on. Yeah. So we'll be talking about that in future episodes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Keith, why don't we uh, move on now and uh, play that terrific interview that you conducted with Eric Kessler and uh, and you know learn a little bit more about him, the the, the company itself, and uh, and then we'll come back and kind of wrap up uh, this uh, latest edition. What, what do you think about that? Yep, let's do it. Okay, uh, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna come back with uh, Keith and Eric Kessler, uh, and we will be right back with more tech move. Hey, Eric. Hey, Keith. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So I guess you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> Do I sound okay? You sound good. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know that you are, are quite a busy person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's only all the fires that pop up every day, uh, unexpectedly, but uh, nevertheless, uh, very, very often. So yeah, but, but but no worries at all. I actually appreciate you, uh, you know, wanting to even talk with me. Oh really? Well, that's great. I mean, you're, I I see uh, you and your company's name all over the place. I see you on uh, podcasts and videos, and um, I mean, you know, I, I think if you're a filmmaker or a cinematographer, you definitely know what Kessler Crane does, and probably know who you are because you're you're pretty much the face of the company, as far as I can tell. yeah unfortunately for other people yeah that's what it is (laughs) so why don't you tell me a little bit about you and your company what the company does now and then we'll go into maybe the history and some other stuff sure well i mean um you know what we're doing now is um you know mostly building support devices for cameras um you know things obviously like uh sliders cranes 
motion control, some tripods, um, heads, you know, the company originally started building, um, cranes, uh, camera jib arms or cranes, uh, for a friend of mine. Um, and actually at that time it wasn't a company. I had just previously sold, uh, a manufacturing company where we made aftermarket paintball gun products. Oh, cool. And so we were just selling out and my marketing guy was a filmmaker and he was working on, uh, just a short, you know, no budget film that him and a local, um, group, you know, film group was putting together and needed a crane and he asked me if I could build something. We had a pretty, you know, elaborate metal fab shop. And so he kind of showed me what was out there and what he wanted and this type of thing. So we built it and was really happy with it. And I really didn't know a whole lot about the industry other than what he exposed me to. And I would go out on a couple of film shoots with him and it seemed like a lot of fun. It was a bunch of guys, you know, dreaming up, you know, different scenarios and writing stories and then trying to shoot the scenes and things like that. So it was just more of a fun, creative thing for us at that time. Um, he was also, uh, just, just to, to, to stop there for a second. Sure. Can you tell me a little bit about this, this first crane that you built, like how you did it and, and how big it was and what it was holding. Just, I think that would be interesting for the folks out sure. there. Sure. At that time we were shooting with an XL, uh, Canon XL one, I believe. Mm -hmm. I know that. And so he, you know, he kind of gave me the spec, you know, it's got to weigh this much. I think he wanted an eight foot reach. He kind of showed me the current cranes that were out of the, on the, on the market at the time. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, I, I kind of like the design on this one for this and for this, you know, and we, you know, but he goes, none of these have this part. So can you, you know, can you put in this break? I don't want cable drive. I want a direct linkage cause I don't want things to slip. So he kind of went through and, you know, so our first crane that we built was, you know, again, at this point was never intended to be sold. It was just a device for, for him. And, uh, you know, so we, we kind of took, some designs or influence from certain things on the market as well as building in the things that weren't there. Um, like what are some of the things that were just unique in, in, well, in that first crane that you built? Yeah. And you know, well, we had a very rigid braking system. Uh, he wanted to be able to lock this thing down. So it was really rigid for still shots without turning the camera off the crane. And at that time, I don't want to say that it didn't exist on some of your hiring cranes, but on the cranes that we were talking about, the, the sub $1,000 budget cranes, uh, they didn't have that feature. At least, you know, this is going back 10, 12 years ago. There wasn't anything out there. And I don't really remember what was even out there because I wasn't very uh, aware of the market or the brands or anything. He was just showing me pictures, you know. And so, uh, you know, he said he didn't want steel. He wanted it to be lightweight. It needed to be able to be broken apart easily. Um, I guess he had some other units that you know, either were fixed length or did not disassemble easily. So we, you know, did a lot of things toolless with knobs. Uh, tolerances were critical where they had to be precision enough to be rigid, but also not so tight that a grain of sand would keep them from going together. And so there was some, you know, trial and error, trying to get that all figured out, uh, giving places for dirt to go, little grooves into things. And coming from the paintball gun industry, you know, it was a lot of that same thing. You know, a gun had to be reliable uh, if you dropped it in the mud, it just you had to pick it up out of the mud and still shoot. But then also it couldn't be so sloppy or um, loose on tolerances that it didn't fire well. You know, so it still had to be an accurate, you know, precision device. It still had a lot of areas or wear points that had to be looser in tolerances to allow dirt to fall through, so it wouldn't get caught up. And so I kind of took that approach when we were building the crane, to, you know, because he was out in the world using this thing, and in you know there was little little hitches along the way where we just kept perfecting it 
And when we had a product that was pretty good, um, and and after the you know kind of the film projects were done or whatever, so tell few- so just tell me a little bit about like did you have a a garage with a bunch of metal tools or or like yeah. what, what's your uh, personal setup that you used for this initial crane? Yeah, the initial one. Uh, I mean, obviously, I had my business building, but where we actually were do- was doing this at was at my at my house. Uh, I had a. 24 by 36 little pole barn, little metal building out back, um, you know, just where I stored the mower and things like that. And I had, uh, I had an old Bridgeport mill, a South Bend lathe. I had an aluminum welder, I had a metal brake. Um, you know, I can't remember all, you know, all your general tools, drill, drill presses, things like that. Uh, so just a little, you know, fab shop, um, just for doing home projects and, you know, that type of thing, things I've acquired at, Prior to even my first business, I was working as a sign fabricator. Okay. Uh, it was, so I, I went to um, school uh, at a at a trade what, what do you call it vocational trade school mm-hmm. um, for both machining and for welding and fabrication. And so right out of that, then I went to work for a national sign company where we built you know pretty much everything out of aluminum, but we did some steel where it was cutting welding. You know we uh, would design the structure of the sign internally and uh and then we'd have to go out and build it and we'd do a prototype then we'd get sent out for structural engineering tests and things like that and if it passed then you know when we start manufacturing those uh so while working there you know equipment would get wore out or replaced because with newer more modern equipment i was able to buy this equipment fairly you know uh, cheaply you know i bought Uh my first welder was probably a you know an eight thousand dollar welder new they sold it to me for five hundred dollars that's crazy Things like that. And so that's how I acquired a lot of the equipment that I had early on, which later benefited me. And I still have a lot of that uh, same equipment because it was good quality stuff. It's just uh, a little dated. Um, and it's always handy to have that kind of stuff, you know, in your in your garage to, to tinker with or fix the lawnmower or whatever you got to fabricate, you know, rather than trying to buy the part or a lot of times with older stuff, you can't even get parts anymore. You either make it or, or, or junk the device that you can't get the part for. That's pretty cool. Like I said, you know, it, it was kind of um, just an organic process where, you know, it worked well and, and he kind of ran in a circle of filmmakers and he just kind of got more exposure that way. And, uh, you know, eventually he got to where he wanted to sell them on eBay. So we were selling them on eBay just, you know, we used to just say for side money, you know, we didn't, I don't think anybody ever thought this would turn into, uh, an actual business. It was just something doing at that same time I was building things like boat lifts, aluminum trailers, uh, jet ski lifts, pretty much just doing general aluminum fabrication on the side. You know, I was working during the day after I sold the uh, paintball gun company actually went back to the, the sign company figuring out what I was going to do next and also doing, you know, just odd jobs on the side, just welding fabrication, friends. I knew, you know, I live on a lake. So a lot of the neighbors knew that, you know, if you got a hole in your pontoon, you could take it to Eric and he'd weld it up for you. Or, you know, if they broke a brace on a boat lift that, you know, I'd go fix it for him. Or if they wanted a custom boat lift built, I could do that too. So I pretty much just did that for about two years while doing the cranes, but you know, it wasn't my main focus uh until it got to be where we were selling like 10 a week of these things and perfecting them all along the way and taking um feedback from customers you know it'd be nice if you you know did this or be nice if you did that or whatever and so after about a year and a half we actually formed kessler crane because we could see that wow you know there's there's a decent you know need for this out there uh we should maybe put a little bit more uh, effort behind it 
So that's what we did. And at also at that time, uh, my friend, um, his, his career was taking off and didn't have time to mess with this. So I, that's when I officially took it over. And, uh, it was at that point, Kessler crane. And also over that two years, I was getting involved more and more in the film industry because, you know, the way I looked at it, if I, if I'm going to be building stuff for this industry, I need to understand more about it. And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so I did a lot of little independent film stuff and just kind of kept chipping away. And then, you know, people said, Hey, the crane's great, but you know, to buy, to find a head that's strong enough to support this thing securely, you know, I'm spending $2,000 on a, you know, very high end pro head. So that's when we built the Hercules head, which is, you know, an extremely heavy duty, very smooth head designed more as a crane support head. And at that time, there wasn't really a need for anything on the market until I created the need for it by the way, you know, because of the way that our crane was designed. So we did that. And then uh, wasn't too long after that, that we built the K-Pod because again, you know, people like, you know, you know, I'm buying your crane because it's like 600 bucks. It's very affordable but I got to buy $2,000 sticks to put it on. It was kind of defeating the purpose. So that's when we came up with the K-Pod. And at that time, this is going back 10 years, I think it was only a $300 tripod. So it was very affordable, very strong, very rigid. And then we, because of its uh, its design of the lock, uh, the pop lock spreader system, which made it extremely rigid, uh, we also found out we were able to turn it right into a dolly. It had its own built-in substructure. Um, so, you know, we didn't need to sit it on a dolly. It was strong enough to be a dolly itself. So we, you know, made the dolly trucks and then the idler arm, then the flex track. That kind of spun off all of those accessories. Um, then uh, at that time, we were selling other people's pan and tilt heads. And the, you know, the three dollars $4,000 pan, pan tilt heads were, were very good. But the ones that we were selling in the sub $2,000 range was, you know, they were okay, but they weren't great. And so then that's when we put our efforts into to, uh, designing a, um, a uh, you know, Pantil head that would perform better than anything else out there and preferably import, perform better than the four and $5,000 head, uh, four and $5,000 heads. And so I, I reached out to a friend of mine that was an electronic engineer uh, that worked on a lot of our electronic firing systems for the paintball guns. And he said, yeah, I think I can help you out with that. So we kind of went through the spec of what it had to do, how much it had to weigh, how much weight it had to lift, how smooth it had to be, how quiet it had to, you know, kind of going through all of this and showing him what's out here, what's good about certain things and what isn't good and trying to systematically go through everything that was not uh, desirable and work it out and trying to work in all the features that, you know, people were wanting and needing and still trying to keep that price point, you know, under $2,000. And we were able to do that with the first uh, revolution head. Um, and at that point it opened up another can of worms. People said, Hey, you got this, you know, Oracle control and digital DSLR cameras were really uh, coming onto the market at that time. So they started saying, can you build in time-lapse capabilities to it? So at that point, I, I knew what time-lapse was, but I had never shot one. So I was like, you know, I really don't know what this is about. So I started dabbling with that and got hooked on time-lapse immediately. And we started working to build in time-lapse features into both the Revolution and, and also slider motors that was able to be controlled with that. So you can now do, you know, time-lapse sliding and uh, time-lapse paint and tilt. And kept building that up till the point where we got to smart lapse, which at that time was a pretty innovative thing. We found a way to basically record an organic move in a pulse method and play it back in steps. 
which at that time, the only way you could ever do anything remotely close to that was servo drives, which were very expensive at the time, or DC encoded motors, which again was, you know, took tons of engineering. That was all in high-end robotics. You know, we started going to the drawing board again, and that's what then, you know, now evolved into the Senate drive system. Mm-hmm. This is cool. Uh, we went into the Senate drive system, and that's been a four-year project with about a team of 10 engineers working on it full-time. It's a very powerful system pretty much can do about anything anyone would would want done and now that's leading into kind of our new direction Uh, now that we kind of built the do anything system now we're having people that says wow that's really powerful and i love the dc motors but you know i don't need that much can you make a stripped down version that just does the core basics and that's where we're at with our new product that's getting ready to come out which is the second shooter which is basically a stripped down version of the uh, Cinedrive, which is a three-axis system, same motor quality, same control quality, but just a much su- simpler user, uh, user interface. So it's pretty much you just you know use all three or one, two, or three of your axis. Go to your first frame, adjust to the end frame, just hit play, and then it'll ask you whether you basically want to play it back in a loop. Uh, you want to live scrub through it. Do you want to play it back as a time lapse? If so, how many photos and whether it's continuous or shoot, move, shoot, or do you want it to be stop motion? So it's a real kind of, you know, I wouldn't want to, I don't want to say bare bones, but I would just say the core essentials of Cinedrive built into a very affordable, extremely uh, intuitive and simple to use system. No, that's great. That's great. I actually have um, a bunch of your stuff. I have the, uh, I have, I have the five, the three foot uh, Philip Bloom slider, the original one. And then I have the uh, five foot one and I've got the Oracle and a few motors and turntable and stuff like that. And sure. yeah. And I was, I mean, basically, you guys were the first company to to do this this kind of uh, controlled uh, time lapse stuff. Uh, I was doing a bunch of DIY stuff myself with you know like uh, telescope motors <laughs> and sure, things like right. that, just to just get these really slow moves that you had to do over time. I still have a bunch of those. Um, I think they're Mead, uh, really cheap things I got on eBay. Uh, yeah. the ones I mean, that... Another big ones, the like rotisserie motors for, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean and there, there's nothing wrong with that. It works. Um, obviously it's just limited in, in it's, you know, trying to control the amount of time and things like that is somewhat clunkier <laughs> to deal with, but it, it does get the job done. It does. If you're really on a budget and you want to spend a lot of time fiddling with it, but your, your stuff, and that's the thing about your stuff is it's, it's not, it's not cheap, but it's also not expense that expensive if you want to be professional about what you're doing and right. that's why i just you know in, in some cases bit the bullet and, and got your stuff because it's just really solid um that's the one of the things that i i love about your gears it's just it's just very well made it's just bulletproof you know it's uh it's not knockoff stuff right <laughs> it's yeah. excellent stuff actually speaking of knockoff stuff um what's your what's your opinion on on because i know that there's I mean, you guys were were some of the first to have the less expensive, uh, low, lower um, lower cost and and lower weight, more portable gear. But now there's a lot of a lot of other companies that are doing that. A lot of Chinese companies are doing that. Foreign companies. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, I guess there's two levels to that. One, I mean, there's guys that are doing things that are competition to us. Yeah. But not necessarily knockoffs. I mean, maybe they've gone down trying to go after the same market as us. Right. And I, you know, as long as the companies are doing it respectfully and, you know, bringing their own innovation or their own designs to it, 
uh, I think competition is extremely healthy. It only pushes us to, you know, try to outdo them, you know, and, and that we're, we're going to do that anyhow, but it, it really puts the heat on us to, you know, uh, make sure that we're staying ahead of the pack. If we, you know, I, I, I also feel that we're doing it right. I mean, I know how much effort and time that we put into making sure that every product that we do is something that um, people um, will enjoy, that will give them, you know, no headaches, uh, performs a job well. And so I have no, you know, I, I don't feel it's arrogancy. I just know that the amount of effort that we put into it, it is a good, you know, we do produce good products. Uh, when it comes to people that, you know, the companies and there, there's a handful of them out there that will just wait for that next hot product to come out. And then they just buy one and copy it, you know, exactly. And even with that though, the build qualities, the materials, the the service behind it, the, you know, how it's adjusted, those, they don't know how to do that. You know, all they do is take measurements, they make the part over. And um, we've heard it time and time again, you might see a product that looks similar to ours or something like that, but it never performs the same way. Right. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I learned this, you know, when I was younger and didn't have a lot of money, you always buy the cheap stuff, right? Because you don't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, but that usually, not always, you get lucky every now and again when you buy a cheap, you know, product, whether it's a knockoff or just a cheap product and it, it'll actually perform decent. But we all know about 80% of the time or more, it it doesn't, you know, you, you know. So the thing is, you buy it right, you buy it once. And over time, if you buy a product that comes with a lifetime warranty and lasts forever you know what we're you know saying is our products are heirloom quality products that they will last you know hand, hand them down to your kids or your grandkids and they're still going to be working the same way that becomes very affordable when you consider that you know you have a tool that you can make money with or perform a job with for you know 20 30 years versus something that yeah might cost half the price today but if it's only going to last a year or even if it is a wearable product even for us there's some things that are going to wear out but when we give a lifetime warranty behind it you don't have to pay again as to where with a lot of other companies that are, you know, these uh, kind of, you know, fly by night companies that aren't going to be there in a year when it does break, then you have to throw the thing away yeah, or fix it in some way that's not going to be very beneficial to you. And then if you got to buy that product again, now all of a sudden it's not cheap anymore. Right. So I think that most people, you know, figure that out over time. Mm -hmm. And there's some people that just don't have the ability to always buy the best. I mean, mm -hmm. even if they know, I know this is going to wear out, but I can at least get a job done a day and make a little money. And it's a stepping stone and I'll buy the good stuff when I get enough jobs under my belt. And that's a, you know, that's how I think most of us do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, that's cool. So I, I think we're going to be putting your interview in a couple of episodes that are about DIY, do it yourself. Sure. And I do. I actually have a little teeny little shop in my garage too. Nothing like yours. I don't have that many metal working tools, but I got a drill and vice and things to sure. to make simple aluminum parts when I when I can't buy them. Right. But because uh, there's just sometimes you just can't buy something. You have to make it yourself. Well, that and you know, there's, if, if you're not, you know, I mean, if you're just going to make something, a lot of times when I make something, the the big attraction to making it is just to see if I can do it. Even though at the end of the day, I know, okay, it's probably not going to be as good as something I can go buy. But if I'm not in a hurry. And I kind of want that challenge anyhow of just, you know, I want to see if I can do it and how good I can do it. And at the end of the day, if it's not something that I, you know, need to make a living with, then why not take that risk and, you know, and, and learn, learn something, you know, because even at the, when you're done with the product or whatever it is that you're trying to make, uh, if it does do the job that you wanted to do, even if it doesn't do it great, there's still that level of satisfaction that you did it, you know, and you did it with your own hands and you feel good about it. And he learned a lot along the way. So there's nothing, I, I don't think there's any DIY, DIY project that's ever done in vain. <laughs> no, that's true. A lot of learning. Sometimes learning 
that you sh- you're better off buying something. But <laughs> yep, there's that too. <laughs> there's definitely that too. I think I've made I think I've made a version of all your products and and eventually thrown them away. But uh, <laughs> well, if nothing I, else, I mean, it, I'm sure you still enjoyed it. On some no, point. I did. I think I was trying to make a cheap slider myself, and so I bought an. I you've probably heard of Igus. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and and a lot of um, a lot of people want to save money by buying the Iga sliders and parts and stuff. And but you know, it's just not it's not as good as your stuff. It's, yeah. it's, well, you know, again, it's it it's one of those things where an off the shelf item that was designed to be a a, a, a generic application, like I guess, was really just meant for um, uh, like industrial automation type devices. You mm-hmm. know, so like if you're in a factory and you have a thing that just needs to shuttle something from you know point A to point B. It'll do that. It wasn't designed to do that perfectly or to do, or I should say smoothly or quietly. You know, it was just designed to move something. So with the cameras, that's what we learned early on is that, you know, there really isn't any off the shelf or very few off the shelf items that are designed to work in the environment that of cinematography. Uh, you know, every, it has to be strong, it has to be rigid, uh, no vibration, it has to be quiet, has to be smooth. And trying to get all that, you know, moving a camera is one thing. Moving a camera smooth is another thing. Moving a camera smooth and quietly is yet another task. You know, there's so many levels to that. And what you'll find almost always is a lot of things have to be engineered to do that. I mean, a lot of people don't have that need. Uh, I've seen people build sliders out of uh, drawer glides, you know, because they go to, uh, you know, Home Depot and get a drawer, a ball bearing drawer glide. But, you know, they're kind of noisy, kind of rattly. They kind of have that rattly feel to it. So, yeah, does it move it, move something? Yeah, but your can't, your drawer doesn't need to move super quiet because it's not in the middle of an interview. It doesn't need to move super smooth. You know, you want it to, you don't want it to feel horrible. But, you know, there's not that same level of expectation off of a drawer glide as there is a camera slider. Yeah, that's true. And I think what's kind of interesting, I, I think you really hit this market great because filmmakers pay a lot for their gear. Mm-hmm. It's just, I mean... It's really expensive stuff. Um, yeah. Even even simple little parts are expensive. Some little add-on part to, to a piece of gear can cost two hundred dollars, you know, and it's just a little right. piece of metal. Uh, so you know, is it was great that you just hit this market where your skills, um, your talent, could actually be be used for this pretty high-end market. You know, yeah. And, well, you know, especially up before the DSLR thing, the the big reason why things are so expensive is, you know, to to even engineer a basic, let's just say a cheese plate, mm-hmm. um, you know, you need a guy that's, you know, probably on an engineering level that understands SolidWorks and how to, you know, design it. Um, you know, most of those guys are making $100,000 a year or more. So you start taking, you know, $60 an hour. And even if it takes them, you know, let's say 20 hours to really, you know, draw it, perfect it, make sure all the holes in the right place, do the CAD CAM, which, you know, writing the code so the CNC machine will run it right, work the little bugs out of it, which takes a couple, you know, go-throughs just to get it tweaked just right, uh, and then walk it out to a machine that, you know, cost a quarter million dollars to make the part, plus the time of the setup guy that's doing it to set the fixturing up, which, you know, is an expensive thing to learn how to hold this part because we're not going to just make one. We're going to make a couple hundred. So it would be more efficient to build a fixture than the time doing all that. At the end of the day, that $3 piece of metal now costs, you know, hundred dollars and the guy has to make a living off it that's doing it otherwise he's not going to want to do it anymore so now he has charged two hundred dollars for this you know three dollar piece of metal uh for that to be you know w- to warrant his time to do this again 
Otherwise, you'll just say, I don't want to do it. And if there's not enough money for anybody, then nobody, nobody's going to provide these things. Now, up when the DSLR came out, the our market became, because it was so accessible and the, the digital era uh, made it to where a lot of people can get into this. Now our market got a lot bigger. And a lot of the old school businesses are still trying to look at, look at when they design a part um, with the mentality of we're only going to sell 200 a year and we have to make back all our engineering and make a profit, all of this over 200 parts. But when you're engineering differently, like the way that we try to look at it is, um, you know, let's, let's price this as if we sold 10,000 of this. And it's a risk on our part because we don't always sell 10,000, but that's how we try to, to price it. And that it takes us a lot longer to make our money back, but at the same time as we get the volume up and as long as hopefully the, the end users uh, group is large enough and the volumes there, then in the end, we all win. We got the prices down. Uh, they got it at a much more affordable price. At the end of the day, we got to remember, we're still not, you know, we're still American made. Um, we don't have people making, you know, 50 cents an hour here. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have service. Uh, we do have somebody you can call and get a hold of somebody right away. And we take care of if there is any issues, you know, we're here, here to help you, whether it's just even how, you know, maybe not a problem with the product, but just how to set it up or to give some advice on certain scenarios um, or you backed over your slider and you need us to fix it. You know, there's going to be somebody that's going to answer the phone today. You can overnight it to us tomorrow. We can fix and get it back out to you versus dealing with, you know, overseas situations. Yeah. I bought a couple things uh, overseas and uh, when they don't work, it's, it's really a pain. Yeah. It's difficult. There's the whole, you know, language barrier. A lot of times there's the logistics of shipping. A lot of times those companies, they're just, all they know is to duplicate a part. That's it. They don't even really know how the product even works. They just copied it from something here in the United States. Yeah. So when it doesn't work, they don't even know how to really tell you why. So I'm going to ask you, what are some of the milestones in uh, Kessler history? Um, you know, when we moved out of the, you know, when we first formed the company, you know, we'll just start with that was the first one when I actually saw that this was a market, you know, because like I said, my only experience with the filmmaking market was pretty much whatever my, my friend exposed me to was this little filmmaking group, you know, it was just all for fun. It really, literally wasn't looking at it, that aspect. And really, I remember saying to him, like, if I sold 10 of these things in a year to amaze me, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was a month later, we're selling 10 a week. And even that's small fries, you know, compared to w what we've worked into. But I had no idea, I guess, the application, how big the market was. So when we actually formed Kessler and we moved out of my pole barn into, um, at that time, my dad owned a building. Uh, and and there was a little dot com in there, a little, uh, it was a motorcycle gadgets or something like that company. They had just moved out and it was a 4,000 square foot building. And I asked my father, can I move in here? Yeah, it's fine. So we got in there and we were official business. So that was kind of the first one. Um, I think the next big turn for us, um, you know, was when we built our, when we got in the electronic side of things, you know, when we built the revolution head, you know, we were just trying to take care of the need of our crane customers, but then that just snowballed into all kinds of applications, you know, with stop motion and time-lapse and for me, it was a really fun time because I really did I enjoyed shooting these short films with my friends. But what was neat about time lapse was for me, um, it was something I could do all by myself. I didn't need uh, to write a script. And it, and it was they were beautiful. This is stuff that most people didn't see at that time because before digital photography uh, with that had the ability to put an intervalometer on it, there really wasn't a good way of doing it unless you're shooting real film and that cost a fortune. So it was you know only reserved for people who wanted to, uh, you know, shoot a thousand dollars worth of film up. Um, so not very 
hobby friendly, we'll say. Um, and then, uh, you know, the neat thing was just seeing, you know, you, even if it's just your backyard, what you see in a 24 hour time-lapse or an eight hour time-lapse that you wouldn't see with your normal eye. So it was just, there was a lot of levels going on there, but it also, you know, our business was booming at that time because of that. Um, we were really, like you said, we're pretty much the, as far as I know, the first ones doing it affordably, you know, this affordable motion control. And, um, and from the personal side was being exposed to this wonderful way of shooting, you know, these scenes that were just amazing. Uh, so that was, that was a, a big step for us. And then I think now, uh, we're into a, even a, well, we've, we then transitioned at that building. We only, it was actually a 15 or 14,000 square foot building, roughly. Uh, I was only renting 4,000 square feet of it. I eventually bought that building for my dad and expanded into the whole section. Um, that was only maybe four or five years ago. And then we outgrew that. Now we just moved into our current building, which is 62,000 square feet. Uh, so it was another big, you know, jump for us. And what has warned that is the, the sales of uh, parallax, you know, that was a very useful tool that a lot of people were wanting. So once we came out that, not only did our sale parallax, you know, was large, but also the sliders that they fit on. It made our sliders even more popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we needed more space. Um, the, the, I guess the growth of our engineering department was a, a big stepping stone for us. Uh, when we started um, Cinedrive, you know, we had only had one electronic engineer. That first guy helped us do the... Uh, the revolution head, but that was going to be such a big project. He brought in two people that he knew. And then that snowballed into, you know, two people they each knew or whatever the acquaintance was. I don't remember how we grew up, but, you know, to grow it to, and now there's, you know, basically 10 people on that team. Um, and, and now mechanical engineering, we have uh, three full time and one that's more of a consultant that pretty much works on exclusively for us now. Uh, but again, that was a, another, you know, I guess big jump for us is to have the engineering power that we have now. That's really cool. I want you to talk a little bit about your typical day. What's a typical day for Eric Kessler? Uh, well, you know, now it's a little bit different. We we have uh, more than 50 employees um, and everybody has their job. My typical day now is pretty much um, going, going and visiting with each of my department heads. So head of mechanical engineering, uh, working with our uh, electronic uh, engineering team. I work very closely with most of each of those individually because that's kind of where my um, my direct my personal direction is within the company right now is 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 making sure those products with the interface and the software features and things like that are just right before they go on to our second level of testing in our Kessler shooters. Um, luckily, I've been able to spend enough time in the field with most of our Kessler shooters and working in these environments that I have a good grasp of what it is they're wanting and how they want to interact with it. So I kind of act as the liaison between the end user and the engineering departments. And then also, you know, uh, looking, working with sales um, and educating them on how our products work, how they're beneficial to people, listening to them on, on the feedback because they're the ones dealing with our, our end user every day. Um, you know, them telling me people are having a lot of problems with this, you know, let's say how to use a certain product. They're not understanding. It's not intuitive enough. So, okay, how can we either, educate them better. Is there an actual problem with the product or do we need to change something about the product to make it more, you know, so going through those kind of steps is what my primarily my day-to-day actions are. It's just working with production. um, Kind of, I walk through our shop. I try at least a handful of times uh, a week and literally put my hands on the product again, making sure 
you know, things are the way I remember I used to build every one of the products um, myself. And I know just how a bolt should feel when he twisted. I know just how everything should be. And I go through and do spot checks. Um, I've edu- educated our teams pretty well. I mean, things I very rarely find anything, but when I do, we, you know, we make sure to uh, find a way that, that doesn't happen anymore. Not always that it's a problem. It's just not the way I would do it. And so I try to, um, keep things going just the same way that if I was out on the floor, uh, you know, just because I, I'm very sensitive to that. I, the last thing I ever want is for a customer to get my product and have a negative reaction to it. I mean, it, it, it personally affects me. Uh, you know, so I really put a lot of pressure on our guys to make sure it's just, a, you know, put that extra effort into it, put that extra 10%. If you're using this product, does it feel right? Yeah. It might not be broke, but is it, is it perfect? And so what we do to, to kind of help with that, we do little in, in-house workshops where we, um, we do a thing called Film Friday where we show one of the films that was shot using our product. Actually, sometimes we'll set up a, like a crane and have them themselves try to duplicate the shot that we just showed so that they know firsthand, you know, why it's important that that doesn't stick right here or why this doesn't make a squeaky noise or whatever that little, those little things on the assembly line that they deal with, on, you know, per product basis, why it's got to be worked out, why we can't allow that to go through. And when we let them actually deal with these products on the end use, then they, they, they understand it and they get it. So they know what to look out for. So that's where we put a lot of effort into doing things like that. That's cool. Uh, that's cool. And I'm sure uh, it's evolved over time. Now you're more supervisorial, but you said you built all the stuff. So when did that transition really happen between you being a builder to being a supervisor? Yeah, I would say, you know, I, when we, we got up to about 12 employees and I was still on the floor every day, still doing part of the assembly or going between the different assemblies and working with them, um, showing them things, you know, very, very hands-on as to where, when we started getting about bigger than 12 employees, just the management requirement of it started getting bigger, you know, obviously. And now it got to be more where I wasn't building the product. I was more or less, I guess, visiting each table once a day. And then it got to be once I trained the people and I started, when I did visit, there was no issues, you know, over and over again, they got it. I felt comfortable that they understood it. They, you know, I, then I would relax more and then we had even more employees and even more. And so, you know, you just kind of slowly grow away from that. But like I said, I still force myself to go out there to the, you know, to the actual assembly floor and make sure that it's still being done the exact same way. And sometimes we find out that it's not. And I'm like, why are you doing it this way? And they explain it to me. And you know what? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that's great. You know, they're, they're out there, they're thinking too, and, and, they're, and they're finding better ways of doing it. We have very intelligent people here, our whole work staff. I'm extremely proud of every one of the, you know, associates that we have here. Um, they're just amazing. And they're, like I said, they care. I mean, that's the neatest thing about Kessler. And, and so many people says that when they come here, it's like the employees are having fun. They care. And the reason why they care is we showed them what they're, what they're doing with their hands, how it influences somebody else and what the end product is and how difficult being on a shoot set is. And if something fails, you know, how bad of a situation that is. Mm-hmm. And I think once a person emotionally attaches themselves to that mentality, then it's, it's very easy for them to, to make that extra effort. And it's not, you know, they see why and why it means. And I think most good people would not want to have that happen to them. And so they go that extra effort to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. That's really cool. It's, it's really cool when the, when, when the, when the company head uh, has started from the beginning 
because you know every phase of the business and uh, you also care about it. You're not just somebody coming in from the outside and trying to try, trying to make money. You actually have pride in your work. Yeah, I, my mentor, which was um, Dennis Tipman Sr., he's the one that owned Tipman Pneumatics, one of the largest paintball gun manufacturers. And I worked in the R&D department there for a little bit, and we, we built the accessories for their guns. And Dennis Tipman Sr. is probably the you know, I guess the person I respected most as a business person, uh, he was a good, genuine person. Uh, he did, I could go on for hours about the the wonderful things I've seen him do. But the mm -hmm. one thing he told me, I remember when I was starting this company, I said, what's the, the, the number one thing or what number one advice you can give me? He said, name the company after your last name. I said, why is that? He said, because with your name on it, you will make sure everything is perfect. Cause he, you know, and, and that's why he named his company after his last name. And I took his advice and I did that. And it does, it holds you to a higher standard. You know, it's, it's my personal name out there. Um, I don't want any negative remarks out in the world going outside of Kessler, you know, otherwise it's a personal thing. I mean, it, it just raises, um, you know, I guess the standard for me too, to make sure I go that extra mile to try to prevent that from ever happening. That's great. Yeah. I've always been amazingly impressed with your your service i, I bought a, a few things from you asked a couple questions of the company and you actually responded to me and we've had a f several email conversations about about the gear and it's just i mean Great. it's actually very impressive to me your, your yeah i service. do you know now obviously i mean i still um do my absolute best i mean we do have several levels of service um so it does get filtered through but it, you know i mean i'm available on twitter i give my email my even my cell phone number out you know regularly especially if it's a customer that's having a problem and i'm the only guy they can get a hold of i'm gonna take care of them i mean it's you know we're all obligated here to you know keeping keeping our customers happy and that's what we want so um i i'm never gonna not be available obviously you know we have tens of thousands of customers so I, <laughs> No way I could ever, you know, answer to all of them. But um, yeah, if you if your email comes across my my plate and I'm on the sales, you know, I get copied on every everything, and 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 I read through as many of them as I possibly can. Uh, and you know, when there ever is that second level thing, it gets brought to my table. You know, especially because I am still part of the engineering team. Hey, Eric, you know, uh, I don't know. It, we just all of a sudden we've gotten three calls where you know something's sticking. Okay, let's go out the you know first of all take care of the customer wherever they need. Let's go out to the floor find out if something changed. You know, was it a material change? Was it something in machine a, a cutter broke and you know somehow slipped through uh, quality control? You know, so we immediately you know it's like you know we, we it's you know code code blue or whatever in here until we find out what it is. Um, and then we instantly take care of it. And that's the other nice thing about everything being done under one roof. If there ever is these, you know, a situation, no matter what it is, we have the ability to take care of it immediately and take care of the customer immediately. That's cool. Okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and go a little bit to the creative side. Um, you mentioned Kessler shooters and I guess, I guess I was first exposed to your products, probably through either Philip Bloom or, or somebody else, somebody, uh, some other famous cinematographer that I saw out there that was using your stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I assume that you have some relationships with these, with these, uh, filmmakers. I, I think you, one of the reasons I got into your gear was, was because of the time-lapse stuff. And I think, uh, you, you work with Tom Lowe, the Timescapes filmmaker. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, why don't you talk a little bit about that initial relationship. And I, and I think you actually went on, on set or on not set, but on location, uh, with him into the desert and things like that. And 
Right. Maybe you could describe a little bit of that experience. Yeah, I mean, so the, the whole Kessler Shooter team is extremely important to our process of product uh, product design. Um, you know, we have if you if you look at the the Kessler shooters, you'll see that they're in kind of very diverse um, sectors of, of filmmaking. You know, some are time-lapse guys, some are, some are wedding guys, some are commercial, mm-hmm. uh, some are just, you know, more of the short films or, or, you know, larger production. Anyhow. So what we do is, well, it's a, it, a lot of times we get our ideas because a Kessler shooter will say, Hey, can you make something that does this? I'm trying to do this shot. And what you have is close, but needs to be modified or an addition to be made to it. Or sometimes it's a, you know, can you make this whole new product? We have done one-offs for them just to help them out on their project. And plus we learn things about that. Uh, The other important side of this is this is our direct connection to the industry. Um, And these are professional people that we've handpicked. Um, Very few of them and maybe none of them were actually you know, now all of them are, I can say, personal friends, but they were usually selected because of the quality of work that they were doing. Something inspired, like, wow, these guys are doing this. We're getting ready to build a product for this sector. We need their feedback on this. We want to know before we ship it to the customer, does this guy think it's good? Uh, I'd much rather work with one guy, weed out all the issues, make it just perfect, then pass it off to four or five other guys that we respect and get it to where no one can say anything bad about it. Now we sell it to the customer versus let's just think we're doing it right. We're not filmmakers in all of these other sectors. So how can we know and just guess at it and then send it out and find out we're doing it all wrong? Because that's very expensive for us and it makes us look bad. Mm-hmm. So the, you know the, this kind of uh, partnership that we have with these very talented um, people are they sometimes give us ideas or when we have an idea on our, we bounce the idea off of them. Would you guys actually use something that did something like this? And sometimes that sparks a whole new idea or a whole new conversation. And then um, also we personally, our team, our engineers, our creative team, our employees get involved on a lot of these shoots. Uh, We'll oftentimes ask, would it be okay if we come out? We got this product we're working on. It's a prototype stage. Rather than just shipping it to you, can we actually come out with you and and watch you shoot with it and actually have us shoot for you with it? And many times, yes, you know, we just did one with Joe Simon where we tested out um, second shooter. Uh, the piece was called Jerry is about a gun engraver down in uh, Austin, Texas, or I'm sorry, Page, Texas. And we, we, we needed a subject piece uh, to, that would give us an environment to try out the stop motion, the time lapse, the interview looping side of it, as well as just motion control side of it. And Joe, it, Joe Simon, you know, offered up, yeah, you know, I'd love for you guys to come down and work for, with us. So we brought all our gear down there. Um, some of our, you know, creative people, um, John and Christina, uh, we flew down there and we got our hands on the product. We got to see how he interacted with it. Uh, we learned a couple little shortcuts in the menus that we wanted to do, uh, based off of his, um, experience with, with the product. Um, also we got to learn that 90% of what we did was perfect, that he loved it just how it was. So that was a great experience. Now that's allows us to go to the next step. Okay, we're good. Let's start production, you know, and now we know the customer. So now we've just released 30 beta units that we feel is perfect. So now we got Joe Simons and a couple other guys, Eric Hines um, have touched it. Um, we got a couple shooters used it. So now what we're doing is sending out like 15, 20 units over the next week um, 
to the, the rest of the Kessler shooters. And we want them to use them for a week or two just to make sure there's no last minute request. You know, is there any other little shortcuts in the menu you feel is adequate? Is there any little features? Um, you know, is there anything where a wire's in the wrong place that it gets in the way of somebody that's doing something often or those little things that you just don't know until it's in 30 different environments. Um, so that's what we're doing now. And if everything comes back, you know, hundred percent or, well, we agree that there's no real changes needed. And now we'll start full production and we'll get that product out the door to people. That's cool. So um, you, you mentioned when I asked you about this uh, interview, you, you couldn't do it last week because you said you were meeting Vincent Lafore. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so you want to tell me a little bit about that that meeting or what goes what went on there? Just a little yeah, personal well, Vince stuff? Is, sure. I mean, the main reason why Vince had come in was more or less just just kind of to chill out. He's never been to Kessler headquarters. He always wanted to. Um, usually when we meet with Vince, it's on the road at Masters in Motion or NAB or some other kind of, you know, collaborative environment and he happened to have some free time and he's like, Hey, it'd be convenient. You care if I stop in for three days and, and just hang out with you? I'm like, yeah, it'd be great. You know? So when he was here, we actually, um, uh, had an idea and we're going to go shoot a mini doc. Uh, hopefully in about three weeks, he's going to come back and there's another very interesting subject and we need some more, uh, just basically, uh, content of both Cinedrive uh, second shooter, so a few other products that we just need beauty content for anyhow. And also it's always great to get more feedback. And again, what we're learning too, the more that we go on these shoots with people, um, there's little things with any product, not just our product that shooters will just put up with that maybe aren't quite annoying enough to say something to a company about, but they just deal with it because it's, it's like, I just really wish this wasn't like this, but it's not horrible. So they just, and just accept it for what it is we're very good about watching how they interact with products. And there's been numerous times where I come back and they're just little things. Maybe it's the shape of an eye. Maybe it's the color of something. Maybe it's the, just a small location that moves it out of the way, makes it more ergonomic or whatever it is that they would have never, you know, if I just sent a product out, they send it back. Okay. It's working good. But maybe there's two or three little things that I could have still made better that they just didn't feel was adequate or was enough of a problem to actually say something about. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing why it's very important that we're, that we're actually working with the end user first in a first person, you know, or in person uh, type scenarios. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, some of this new gear that you're coming mm -hmm. out with. I'm actually really excited about this uh, second shooter product. I, I, I want to be, on your list to get some of the sure. first ones after it's after it's tested. But can you um, tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. I mean, it's, so again, it's um, what, so we built Cinedrive, uh, which, you know, we like to think is the, you know, practically the, you know, the do anything kind of motion control, you know, you can go up to 10 axis, you all kinds of, you know, pretty much endless keyframes and uh, all kinds of crazy moves and focus motors and, pretty much every kind of feature. And we're still developing on that platform. And that's great for a lot of your larger budget studios and your more, you know, hiring commercial work and things like that. But for your guy, that's like a one man time lapser, that's going to have to hike up a mountain, uh, you know, just to get a time lapse. He doesn't need all that other stuff, you know, and he, he's also shooting with a DSLR that weighs, you know, five, six pounds of the lens. So drive was built to handle, you know, fully loaded, you know, Alexa or, you know, whatever these larger, studio cameras. Mm -hmm. So being that we developed all of this technology for Cinedrive, we said, what if we just stripped it down and, and put it into a little four pound package, 
little mini pan tilt, three axes is, you know, we kind of took a lot of surveys, like how many axes is necessary? You know, about 80% of people's like, if you just gave me three axes, I could do a lot with that. So we started with the three axis system, but a lot of people, you know, said, but it would be nice to add a focus motor or, or whatever. So what we did is we made the controllers linkable. So even though the, the controller to, to keep the, the, the core controller cost down, you could always buy, if you're the type of person that does need a focus motor and want to link it in with your primary three axis, you can buy a second controller and link those together. So one axis is a master, the other one acts as a slave, and you plug your focus motor into that. So it is expandable, but it allows you to do it in $700 chunks versus buying a, you know, a $10,000 motion control system. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of times people say, all I need is two keyframes. I just want to, you know, start on this subject and end on this subject. And I wanted to traverse through that perfectly with some minimum ramping capabilities and some other things like that. So what we did is we stripped the, the core essential features, you know, which is looping for a guy's running parallax. And originally when the product was originally called Unidrive, it was going to be a one axis system and it was just going to be this uh, repeatable looping control for as an, uh, an accessory for parallax. But then, then we had people asking, well, you know, on the other side of the table, I just need a three axis motion control system. And we thought, well, rather than coming up with two somewhat similar products, just, just put it all into one product, but make it modular. So, that's what second shooter is now is a three axis system that can be purchased controller only. And then you can buy just one slider motor. And even that we made modular. So instead of having five different motors, like we do in the Cinedrive system uh, that is required for doing, you know, a large array of different, you know, very exotic type shooting. Uh, we found out that there's only real three kind of key areas that, that the speed ranges need to be, you know, it's gotta be, we gotta provide a one that's torquey enough to do a vertical time-lapse with a fairly loaded DSLR. We gotta have, you know, a good all around motor. That's going to be your daily workhorse motor uh, gearing. And then we need one for, that's a little bit higher speed, you know, gearing. So that way, uh, you know, if they're trying to do a faster shot or, you know, something for a music video, they need to do kind of like a little whip pan or something like that. So what we did was rather than selling three different motors, which becomes expensive and you have a lot of gear, we came up with a quick change pulley drive system, which allows you to essentially change out just the output pulley to give you three different gearing combinations, uh, a high torque, a high speed, and kind of a middle, middle of the road that will, you, will be what people will use mostly. But now you just have these little lightweight pulleys that you just swap them out and you get these uh, different speeds. Then, on a, then you can add the pan and tilt devices which the pan and tilt can even be separated. So if you only need a pan for, let's say, a turntable, let's say you're a jeweler or you're shooting jewelry work and all you need is a, uh, a turntable device, you don't have to buy the slider motor and you don't have to buy the tilt. You can buy just the controller and the pan device. And then later on, you can add the tilt if you want to, if your work changes or you see a need for it. So that's how we decided to approach it. That way anybody can make whatever type of system they want out of it. That's really, really cool. So, so basically, the par the parallax system is is mechanical, and you can put a motor on it. But if you if you just have the second shooter system, you don't need the parallax system. Is well, that, is that correct? Well, there is so there is a little bit of difference to that. Okay. Um, and we, we will have a a firmware update in the future that will correct that. So right now, what happens is is if you if you try to duplicate a parallax effect um, on a slider and you do a two keyframe move. So you go to the one end and you put it on your subject and mm -hmm. you go to the other end and you put it on your subject. When you play that shot back with an electronic linear device, so all it's doing is making, so that means that it's back panning at the same rate that it's, that it's sliding. Mm -hmm. 
um, you through the middle portion of that move, you will go off subject. Okay. Because it's an exponential rate of change throughout right. the center. So if you think about it at the beginning, it's going to pan a lot because the travel. But as you get it through the middle area, it your your distance or you know your angle to your subject is less. Correct. So we've come up with a mathematical formula that will most likely not be in the first release of second shooter, but it could be because they are working on that. Mm-hmm. Where it adds an extra step. So if you want to shoot in parallax mode, the the thing would be is you know you go to first frame subject last frame subject and then you measure the distance from your subject to the center of the slider uh-huh. and now it now it calculates that exponential rate of of speed through it got it um so with a parallax bar it's mechanical yeah you just adjust it and it just it basically just does it for you uh-huh. the other benefit to that is a lot of times when you're doing parallax shots in an interviewing environment you want it to be as quiet as possible and our slider motor is silent and um, the pan and tilt make a little more noise. I wouldn't say horrible, but they because now you have three motors running, whereas before you only had one, you have three times the amount of sound. Okay. And you have things reverberating off of the sliders. You know, so for you know, the reason why we're gonna have both products is you know, the three axis motion control side would be more for your visual effects guys, your you know, motion time lapse people doing commercial work, visual effects where parallax is needed. And those kind of environments where a parallax and a slider motor or a parallax by itself comes into play is you're doing weddings, um, doing inter- sit down interviews where you're five feet away from your subject, you know, where you need a si- you know, a truly silent environment. Okay. Now you're all talking, you know, super silent ball bearings, only one motor running at an extremely, you know, slow speed that is silent. Uh-huh. Uh, there's no real torque involved, you know, in that way. And that's the benefit. So you go to the high speed. Now, it, because the output's so fast, the actual motor inside is barely even turning. It makes no noise at all. As to where with the pantil head, they have to be able to lift weight. And even though they're very quiet, th- their gearing is more uh, uh, to where the motor's running at a higher rate of speed, even though the output speed is not the same. I see. I see. Well, it'd be, it would be great if somehow you could think of a, at least a pan motor that could be really quiet. And that was one of the issues I had a little bit with uh, the stuff I have now which is I couldn't quite use it for an interview situation um, Correct. just because it made a bit, a bit of noise. And I think you and I had a conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a, is there a turntable motor or is it pan and tilt or are they kind of the same motors? Well, the pan, if you look, if you, you know, if you take a look at the photos of on our website, a second shooter, you can see that the pan axis, basically it's like a, it's about a five inch square turntable. I mean, uh-huh. it's uh, it's about an inch and I'm going to guess here and say it's an inch and a quarter thick by mm-hmm. five inches square. Mm-hmm. And it's got a little round output on top of it. And yeah. we're going to have the turntable tops for that. Um, there's going to be a, a slew of accessories coming out for the second shooter. And one thing I didn't mention, too, you know, even with the modularity, not only is it modular within itself, but let's say you get to the day where you have a, uh, a pretty elaborate three axis or even you expand to two three axis systems that are bridged together. Now you want to take control with the chaos software there will be an interface where our CineDrive Chaos software now will control these motors. So now you can go to, you know, 10 keyframes, start implementing all the power of the Chaos software. That's really cool. So, it's you know, you can kind of build your system as you need it. And then once you have the Chaos software in the, in the brain, now you can in, maybe something comes along where you now need, you know, the, the CineDrive pan tilt head or the, you know, the, the motion control crane that we're coming out with. So all these components will kind of intermingle with each other as you need them. So say somebody wanted to just do some kind of simple time lapse, like just 
maybe from one from one side of the slider to the other side with a little bit of turntable move, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of pan move. Would that be possible with with the second shooter system, or would you need? Oh a... yeah, I mean it's panning, but it's panning linearly. You right, know, it's, right. It's going so um, wherever you put your points. So like when you use a keyframing system, you know it's going it's going from one keyframe to the next keyframe. So the area in between is just a transition. What's different between parallax is the whole center point is your keyframe the whole throughout the whole move. Right. So it it almost be the equivalent of you know moving an inch, setting a new keyframe, moving an inch, and you know keeping on target mm-hmm. the whole way. Yeah. And that is possible. It's just a different. Um, it's a it's a different way you have to approach it than versus just tra- traversing from key points. You're trying to find one key point and have it figure out how to wrap around it. Yeah. Well, so there's a l- little bit different math going on there. Yeah. So say I didn't really care about say I wasn't doing an interview and didn't need to center on a subject. Say I just wanted to do a long time lapse that had a little bit of movement in it. You know, something right. like an over an hour. Would that be possible with a second shooter? Oh yeah, definitely. And okay. you can use the pan device by itself. You just want to put the pan device on a tripod and just get, you know, a pan, you know, time lapse. You can do that or you can do a pan and tilt by itself uh-huh. or you can do pan tilt slide. So do I need do I just need the second shooter brain for that? Just one right. brain? Yep, just the controller and that'll handle three motors and like I said if you let's say you get to a scenario where um, you know, I need that fourth axis. I want to do a pan tilt slide and focus or focus and zoom and aperture. Now you could buy a second second shooter brain. And there's a, an expansion port on the bottom. You just plug those two together. And then in the settings, you set one as a slave and one as a master. And basically what you do is you use the first controller to put your three, your first three axes in their first keyframe position. Use your second keyframe or your second controller to put the other two or one to three axes into their first keyframe position. And on the primary master, when you hit, you know, mark begin, it records them all. Then it, you do the same for the ending, you know, the mark end or your second keyframe. And then when you hit play, all your play settings, the amount of time, how many photos, all of that is synced up to the second controller. Okay. So it's acting just as more or less a pass-through at that point. Uh It's just using um, the limitations within the controller are the motor control boards inside. Um, So the way we do it with CineDrive is we have a master brain that actually cannot control any motors by itself. It's just a computer. And then what we have, if you notice, we have these things called MCBs. Those are motor control boxes. Mm -hmm. So those are the actual motor drivers for each of the individual axes. And that's why we're able to to run 10. And and technically, the brain itself can run, I think it's like 255. What the limitation is, is power. Mm -hmm. You know, if we have more than 10 motors pulling an amp each, that's 10 amps of power. We don't. We can't supply more power than that. So that's the limitation. It's not the communication side of things. It's we don't have a way to pipe enough power out to, to more than 10 motors. So it's kind of the same thing with the um, second shooter. It has three control boards in it, all able to, to deliver one amp of power to each motor. Uh, so that's what our limitation is there. So by adding a second um, second shooter you know, brain or controller, you're now able to handle three more brains the computing power is all there in the in the first brain that's the master got it uh, it just needs that as the distribution plus the controller would start getting big and bulky if you have six cables and where do you quit you know is it is five enough it's you know and every one of those motor control boards inside cost uh, you know a decent amount of money and so for a guy that only wants a one axis system now he's paying for you know let's say five axis that he know will never want now the products you know kind of priced itself out of the market so that's where we chose three as the 
kind of that sweet spot that yeah. most people want between one and three axis, and we gave them the ability to add on. Now, the other neat thing is uh, if, out of that three axis, it's three axis. You don't have to do pan, tilt, slide. You could do pan, tilt, focus motor, or you could do slider, focus motor, and pan. So it doesn't matter, you know, typically you're going to, most people are going to be pan, tilt, slide, but you, you can substitute, you know, a slider motor for a focus motor or whatever axis you, you, you want to switch up. They're just motors. So it's just depending on what you're wanting to run with it. That's pretty cool. That sounds like a product that I definitely want to get. <laughs> it's very, well, and it's very affordable. You can buy a three axis system for, I think it's uh, $1,400. And it's, it, you know, the other thing is unlike, you know, the Oracle and our basic controller is it's, it's digitally encoded. And what that means is it's a super smooth, super quiet with very high resolution feedback, which knows right where it's at at all times. Mm -hmm. So even though stepper motors is a step up from your, your uh, traditional analog, they're very noisy. They have that zippy sound as they're going because they're actually yep. stepping through little magnetic poles. Mm -hmm. And the downside of that is they're limited, their resolution of position is limited to however many poles that they have around the motor. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just taking these steps. And also they kind of make this not so smooth as the, that's why they sound that way. It's actually pulsing to each one of those steps and they're taking steps, which is fine for robotics where you just want to go from point A to point B and stop and know exactly right where to stop. It'll do that well. But again, it's that whole thing. The in-between is not all that great. Also, you have the audible noise, which is also not that great. The other downside is steppers, unless it, they are starting to come out with some uh, encoded steppers, but 99%, especially anything that's in the affordable range, uh, they're not encoded, which means that I'm going to, if I want you to move 300 steps, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to send out 300 pulses. If you stop that motor from moving those pulses, it doesn't know that it's off. Mm. Our system does, and it corrects. Mm. It also sees that if your weight load changes as, you know, let's say you're tilting and the camera is getting heavier on the system as it goes up or down, it knows how to maintain velocity. It throws more power, takes power away as it's moving through it. So you get a per perfectly consistent movement. It's a lot like cruise control on your car. That is a closed loop encoded system. So when you set it to 60 miles per hour, it isn't like you're just locking your accelerator pedal at a certain point. If you did that, as you went up a hill, your car would go slower. And as you went down the hill, your car would go faster. All it's doing is giving the same amount of power. Mm -hmm. What our system's doing is actually looking at the speedometer, so to speak. If it starts to go 60.1, it backs the throttle off. If it starts to go 59.9, it gives it more power. It maintains right at 60 miles per hour. So that's the way to a feedback system, or what they call a closed-loop, digitally encoded system does. That's really cool. I wind down the interview by asking about personal filmmaking. What gear do you personally use? So I'm just going to ask, do you, do you make your own films? Um, you know, I haven't in a long time. I have done a lot of little side projects, um, nothing that I've really ever shown to anyone. Um, <laughs> I was more the geek side of it. You know, I was I was amazed by the gear. I was amazed by I, I love shooting scenes, like just clips that inspire me. And have I ever it's always one of those things that, you know, once I'm old and can't do anything anymore, I'm going to sit down and edit all this stuff together that I've been shooting over the years. It's always been that. Um, I've been more inspired by this industry, more on the side of how can I help achieve other people that I feel have probably better visions than I do. You know, that's I know who I am. I know what my real skills are. Uh, I try to apply those, you know, in an effective way. Um, making films is fun. It's a, it, I love it. Uh, it's a great creative outlet for me or, you know, at least shooting shooting things. I shouldn't say I've ever made a, a, a film, a completed film. 
but it's more the gadgety side of stuff that really attracts me to it. Um, I love all the new cameras. When you ask me what gear do I have, I have a lot of it. And I'm lucky enough that it, we actually need to have a lot of it here to see how our products work. But from the the geek side of it, I get to play with all these new toys all the time. <laughs> so so tell, I, me, tell me a little bit about your gear. Um, okay. I mean, well, I mean, I my, my personal camera, I have 5D3 that I just kind of keep with me. I pretty much have every L-series lens there is because we actually use it in-house. Uh, but, you know, it's also nice to have them with me just to, no matter what I'm doing. Uh, whether it's testing gear or shooting for myself, I have pretty much, you know, all of those pieces. I have, uh, oh, obviously everything we make or at least a form of it. You know, I keep a pocket jib uh, pro with me, a regular pocket jib, pocket jib traveler. Um, uh, my slider of choice actually usually, well, for my just doing sliding shots and parallax stuff, I always keep a stealth with me. And for doing my motion control stuff, I with Cine drive, I carry a Cine slider, a three-foot Cine slider. Um, I don't use any of my big cranes any very much anymore because, you know, there's, there's so big, you really need to have a reason why you're dragging out a 12 foot or an 18 foot crane, uh -huh. um, and doing a lot of my little running gun type stuff or, you know, on vacations and things like that. There's not a lot of need for that. Um, uh, see, um, as far as cameras go, I mean, we have, you know, scarlets and reds and. I don't even know what we, we have a lot of different things that we buy and sell. A lot of times we buy it just to see how it's going to fit. And after we don't have a need for it anymore, we sell it off to one of our, you know, either our, one of our shooters or somebody we know, or we throw it up on eBay or whatever. So a lot of things come through here, but the only real like camera kit that I hang on to as my personal kit is my 5D3 and um, all my lenses. And then in the studio, I know that we have a Scarlet and a uh, Epic, uh, a lot of DSLRs. And a handful of some other ones that happen to be there right now. There might be uh, Canon 300 in there. It may be, I don't know. To be honest with you, I haven't been in there and, and our creative guys are using it. So, um, But again, those aren't my personal kit. They're just the stuff that's in the studio that they use. So what do you use when you're just a tourist and you're not on the job? Like, An iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, <me. laughs> like everybody else. Me too. <laughs> uh, that's always there. I mean, I do usually bring, like, if I'm going to a really neat location... I'll bring my 5D3 with a stripped down kit, maybe like a 1635 and 7200, something like that, mm -hmm. with an intervalometer on a, on a little lightweight carbon fiber set of sticks. Or maybe sometimes I'll throw like a two foot slider in the bag just to get a little motion control shot. Those, again, those are just things for, for fun. You know, it is a, um, a relaxing activity to, you know, go down to a beach or some, you know, woods alongside of a lake or something like that and shoot something beautiful. Yeah, I actually, um, I actually just sold my 5D3. Oh, did you? So yeah. where are you, what are you switching off to? Um, I'm going to, well, for the for the full frame, I'm going to get an A7S pretty soon. Okay. Um, yep. Which I think is has a lot of advantages. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd look into that if I were you because I think it's. Yeah. Well, I've been watching the reviews. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, uh, I think it was Philip just did a big one on there. and um, yeah. yeah. It's like a fantastic camera. The real reason why I don't switch from Canon is, for one, I'm not making a living doing yeah. that side of it. So... Um, I'm not as pushed to stay on top of that technology personally. And the other side of it is I'm very vested with the glass. You know, I mean, I have, you know, a lot of money tied up into my lenses. So they're going to have to do something with another 
with another brand, they're going to have to do something that's super, you know, outrageous for me to want to, you know, start all over again with my glass collection yeah. or come with a camera that interfaces to the Canon glass, which I think a lot of people in our inter- uh, industry is very well vested in Canon yeah. uh, just because they were kind of the first ones doing it well. Now Nikon's, you know, they're coming up. They've got some good stuff coming up too. obviously Sony with the a seven. I mean, is it, um, I mean, I think their big thing with that is the low light capabilities. It's just amazing. The, the low light's amazing, and the image is good, and it doesn't have the the thing that I don't like is just all the space taken up with the mirror, because they're mirrorless. So you can make the camera a lot smaller, and and the technology is just I think better. What sure. I I I've, I too was a Canon shooter. I have a bunch of Canon, uh, like I have a C100 and other stuff that I'm going to keep because it's a great camera. But um, they have there's a there's a company called Metabones and there's some other knockoff companies too that make an adapter for L for a Canon glass to okay. to Sony glass. And are, are does it pass through the electronics? It does as well? actually. Okay. Yeah, good. it good. does. So yeah. it just it make, helps to make the transition a lot better. Yeah, it works really well. Um, but the thing that I'm really uh, th- so that I'm going to get that pretty soon because I need a good low light. But the thing that I also got recently, like cu- a couple months ago, was the the Panasonic G4. Yeah. Yep. G4. GH4. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and it's um, it's kind of amazing the 4K capability. Yeah, and it's such a small package too. We have a GH2. I think it's still the same body size, isn't it? Yeah. The GH2. Yeah. So extremely small. And I'm a big fan of the GH2. I actually invested in me four or five lenses with that. Um, That was actually when I went to as it was two years ago. I think I was right about when the GH2 was really hot. Um, We went to Bahamas, and that was the only camera I took with me. So small. It's nice. Yeah, it just doesn't have the low light capability. It doesn't, right? Yeah, but other than that, it's it's kind of amazing the tech they have in that. So, do you have any funny disaster stories? <laughs> oh, oh man, I'm sure we do. See, that one catches me a little off guard. Uh, disaster, like uh, product wise, disaster, just, or could be could be like your factory shut down, or or yeah, something. Oh, it seems like I mean, there's always something going on. <laughs> <laughs> what's, I should be able to just rattle these off. Dude. What's the most recent disaster? Could uh, could be a happy ending too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, just today our power shut down for an hour, but I mean, it's not a great story. It's just you know, the transformer outside blew up and took them an hour to get it up and running. You know, when you got fifty employees sitting around twiddling their thumbs, it's not a good thing. You know. Any any um, good stories about your uh, your your shooters when you're on? On, on location. Yeah, but most of those, they, any of the good stuff, they'd probably kill me. <laughs> probably most of them that are coming to mind are pretty embarrassing. Too. <laughs> so I probably ought to not go there. <laughs> That's what a lot of people say. Yeah. They'd rather not uh, mar yeah, their reputation. Don't want to burn any bridges. You know, they're good friends, and uh, <laughs> we need them. They're part of our, you know, our design process, so we don't want them bailing on us. Okay. Well, if you think of something in the next couple of minutes, you can let me know. Sure. Um, so another thing that we say, and and you're, and this is a, maybe a little different because you're you're kind of a gear guy to start with, and I usually am like interviewing cinematographers and stuff. But um, one of the things that I, because I'm I'm really into gear too, but I'm also an artist, and and a lot of people say, you know, it's not the gear, it's it's the story, you know. And if you're a good filmmaker, you can use an iPhone and 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 come out with something that's great. But I agree with that. Yeah, I do agree with that. But I still do think the gear can get you there. Well, right. I mean, it's, you know, like you said, if you're a great, you know, first of all, it's got to be a great story. You know, I mean, that's, I think that's number one, right? I mean, you can't, I mean, not, not to my people want to sit down and watch something about nothing, you know, unless <laughs> Seinfeld got away with it, but, you know, they're the only ones. 
Uh, so first you got to have story and then, you know, you got to know composition and how to use what you're doing in lighting. And, and obviously that's where, you know, the saying you can use an iPhone and tell a good story is true, but the, you know, tool and the iPhone itself is gear. I mean, you need, you know, that, you know, that's still gear. And then if, if part of your story is, you know, maybe how a camera moves, like to do a reveal shot or a push in shot to add emotion, would that story be good without it? Yes. Is it better with it? Yes. Um, you know, it's like anything else. It's, you know, you can give a, a painter one color and one brush and he can still probably do a great painting. But if you give him a hundred colors with a bunch of different styles of brushes and tools, it could be that much better. So I, I think that's the same I, approach it would be to, to filmmaking that, you know, could you make a great film without having lights or good audio or anything but an iPhone? And, and the answer is yes, you can still make it good, but can you make it fabulous or can you make it, you know, better than what you would have if you just, and the answer to that is also yes. I mean, the more tools you have, especially if you know how to use them right, they're only going to add to the emotion, the quality, the feel of the film and make it a more enjoyable experience for the end viewer. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mm -hmm. agree with you there. I mean, there are the, you know, I think when most people are saying that, uh, where they're actually directing that is they don't, no one should ever feel that gear will make you a great filmmaker. That, that I think that's what should be said. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some people, and I'm one of them, not so much in filmmaking, but, you know, it, it's like, you know, if I buy that $10,000 set of golf clubs, I can pay, play golf better. <laughs> and, you know, it's that kind of, you know, thing. That's where I think the saying is meant to um, kind of reach out to the people that are kind of like saying, well, you know, my films aren't good. I'm not happy with them. But if I just had a slider, if I just had a crane, then they'd be great. And that's probably not going to be true. Um, only thing that sliders and cranes can do for you is help to tell your story in a better way or lend themselves to your story. You still have to have a good film in the beginning to start off with. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent point. Well, I think that's... I think that's it. I've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate sure, it. No problem. No, I enjoy doing these. I'm sorry I've been so hard to get a hold of. It's just between people coming in and new product launches. <laughs> you know, again, like I said, most of my day is literally going around between my apartment heads. And when I sit down in their office, there's like, I get a sheet of paper. Here's the 20 questions that you didn't answer in the last three days. I couldn't get a hold of you. I need to know what to do here. Uh, so that's pretty much my day now It's going through. And then also saying, what are you doing? And making sure they're not going down the wrong track too, you know, because a lot of our guys, you know, they, again, I'm, I'm the liaison between the end, you know, shooter or the user and our manufacturing, you know, so I need to make sure that I don't let them go down the wrong road. And we've been doing this enough years now. It's, it's great. You know, when we first started our mechanical engineering department before it was just me, when I hired a bunch, you know, not a bunch, several engineers, it, there was a learning curve. You know, they, they knew how to engineer things, but they didn't understand filmmaking. And so, you know, they would put holes in places that holes didn't belong in. And they would, you know, yeah, at the end of the day, did it do what I asked them to do? Yes, it, it was a device that did, you know, it was a widget that did what I said it needed to do. But it was so many little wrong things in there. You know, it um, didn't work upside down or, you know, what are these things? And that, those are the things now, luckily, with our team that's been doing this with me for four or five years. That's been worked out. You know, now when I go in and I, I don't need to check on them every hour, I check on them, you know, every three days or every week and say, all right, we're, what got done? Where are we going this week? And they tell me and then I'm like, okay, that's all good, but we don't really need to focus on this anymore or how to prioritize their efforts 
So based off of, you know, I'm one of the few people in this company that get a full overview snapshot of what all the other departments are doing. And if I know one department needs another department's help, but they're not up to speed, I can then reshift to different departments, uh, departments, uh, efforts because, you know, so we're not wasting each other's time. So I'm just a big organizer now and, um, helping to give direction and kind of the inspiration and new products, not always my own ideas. Like I said, there, I'm just that, that go between, you know, the outside world and what we do inside this building. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I'm really, I'm really happy for your success. I think I saw some article in some local website paper newspaper thing that you're one of the the fastest growing companies in Indiana, something like that. Yeah, we won. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we won the. I'm sure. Yeah, it was something like uh, companies to watch or yeah. something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was great. I mean, yeah, we're really expanding. I think we have a, a kind of a different take on business, which is honestly. Don't focus on make money, focus on, you know, if you see my Twitter feed, you know, it's, I'm fueled by smiles and that's not, I know it sounds cheesy, Mm -hmm. but it literally is again, what, you know, my mentality is if you, if you make someone happy for one thing, you get paid back in so many better ways than just money. I mean, it makes you feel good, right? I mean, who cares about whether somebody hands you five bucks or not, a smile is way, it gives you self-worth is what it gives you. Um, it, it makes you relevant to be on this earth. And, you know, I would much rather have five people smile at me than have $5 in my pocket. And the neat thing about that is, is if you're contributing happiness to other people's lives, they don't have a problem giving you money. I mean, that they, you know, they're just as wanting to have to smile about something as you are trying to get that smile. And the money is just the thing that has to, you know, it's the ugly side of it that just has to happen. So everybody eats at the end of the week, you know? So um, I think that companies that take that approach will be much, you know, I mean, they're going to be successful because I mean, who, how can they not? I mean, you know, if, if your whole day is spent trying to make something, make somebody smile. And if you say, is this right? And they say no. And you keep fixing it, keep fixing it. When you make this widget, it, whenever you get to the end and no one can say anything but happy things about that, that's something they're going to want. And they're going to pay money for and you win and then they win. So I think that's just kind of the way that we do things. And, you know, I don't understand the logic on why every company doesn't do it that way because it seems like it's so much more beneficial. They still get paid in the end and probably get paid even better and they get to feel good about what they're doing. Yeah, that's an amazing attitude. I think, you know, because you started the company and you're you're just into it, you know, it's yeah. it's 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 your passion. You know, you did this stuff because you like it. It's not just mm-hmm. a job. Right. Yeah. And I think I that's, that. yeah, I think that's the key to, to any successful career or business. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, for the people actually shooting the films, I mean, there's no better compliment than, you know, the tear that comes to an eye after they watch it or the smile that's on their face after they watch it, or if it's a comedy, the laughter, this, you know, the, the, you know, someone watching someone get scared if it's a, a horror film, I mean that they're doing, they're seeing the result of their work and in a positive way. And I think that, I think you can just say it for anybody. That's that's probably the most valuable thing. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you get to feel good that I did something that was beneficial to someone else. It just gives you, you know, it gives you self-worth. And, you know, who cares if you can make a lot of money if you don't feel good about yourself? You're just going to be miserable. That's a lot of great information. Ho- hopefully just whoever, you know, listens to it gets something out of it that makes their day better. You know? <laughs> maybe, maybe gives them a different perspective on life so that they don't go to college and just try to make money. And I, that's the, you know... The worst thing you could ever do. I think that was, 
you know, everybody that does ever ask me, what's one piece of business advice that you can give them? The thing is, is don't try to make money. Try to make somebody happy. You'll get, if you do that, you'll get money. I promise, you know, that, but you know, when I was young, you know, and you, I think it's the general mentality, survival. I, I need money to survive. I need money to survive. I need money to survive. I think that once you can get to where, and I'll tell you how I got to where I'm at. When I was in paintball, it was very much about money. And I never felt good about myself. It was about rushing product, even though we did have a good product. And I didn't, I never pumped out junk. I will honestly say that. But I wasn't putting the end user 100% first. It was always about the bottom dollar. Where, where can we shave a dollar? Where can we do this? Where can, you know, it was, I was just so focused on money and it became a very, you know, kind of cold environment, you know, that it was just about these, these numbers on white paper all the time. And it wasn't fun. And when I got into paintball, I loved it. I was a player, you know, I, I played our uh, local tournaments and that's how I got into wanting to make products and make them better and things like that. And I got, I lost focus of that. And when I started this company, I really made it an effort to not, not focus on money, focus on making a difference in the way that I can make a difference. You know, I'm not saving animals. I'm not saving starving children. So I'm, what I do is not that important, but it's the only thing I know how to do. It's how I can apply myself. But the way I look at it is maybe I can help somebody make a beautiful film that saves a child or saves an animal or, you know, something like that. So even though I'm not like the, the guy that's right at the end doing the great deed, I'm hope, hoping that somehow I'm allowing them to do their job to do it or gets down the chain and somehow makes a positive, you know, change in the world. And if nothing else, just get a smile. You know what I mean? It, it make a guy happy for the day, you know, or at <laughs> least not be the guy that made him frown for the day. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that guy. So maybe I didn't, you know, impress him enough to get a smile. But as long as I wasn't the guy causing the problem in his life for the day, <laughs> that I'm doing pretty good, you know? So um, I just try to go with that general focus of how can we do our job to where if nothing else, we don't exist. They paid us money to do a job. We did it. We don't, you know, that's the little, the very least we should be doing, but I really wanted to get them. And, and I think we do because we, we get so many people. And I'm, I mean, it almost brings a tear to my eye sometimes that how many times we get a customer that goes out of their way to write us a thank you letter. I'll be honest with you. I've never written a thank you letter to another company. The way I look at it, and I don't mean to be, a jerk, but it's like, you know, oh, I paid for, you know, I don't think about the company behind it that made this product that actually did what it was supposed to do and, and somehow benefited my life. Mm -hmm. It's neat that, you know, it might only be one out of a thousand, but we do get those, you know, and pretty regularly, usually once a week or more, we'll either get a, a tweet, a tweet where such a joy to use Kessler gear. It just works. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, or we get sometimes these very long, we've had people send us gifts. Uh, we, we just had a guy send us some, uh, some, they're very tasty roasted almonds that, <laughs> that his mom makes that he's very proud of. And he's like, you know what? He goes, I just want to thank you. I've been using your gear for a year and I've had zero issues. And I came from using other stuff that I had nothing but problems with. You've allowed me to do my job flawlessly for a year. I just wanted to say thanks. I mean, that's so awesome, right? I mean, I mean, geez, I mean, I've never done that to anything. I'm, matter of fact, I should probably start making a point to like, look at anything I've bought or any kind of service that I've, you know, purchased over a year and try to at least pick out, you know, one that, you know, actually did it very well and, and at least make an effort to say thank you. So I feel guilty in the fact that I've been on the receiving end of that so many times that I've, I've yet to do it. So maybe I'll make a point for now on to make sure that I do that. <laughs> great point And a, probably a great, a great, uh, point to end on. Yeah. So, um, 
Thank you very much, Eric. Well, thank you. I mean, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, I'm flattered that you even want want to hear hear me run my mouth for an hour. <laughs> no, actually, um, after hearing you run your mouth for an hour, I actually, you know, think a lot more of you than oh, I did well, before. I yeah, so I really, really appreciate the time. And thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Okay, take care. Yep, see you later. Wow, that was a terrific uh, look inside of a really, really terrific guy, it sounds like. Uh, the great Eric Kessler, I want to thank him and you, Keith, for uh, for doing that great interview and uh, for Eric for sharing his time with the Tech Move uh, Nation and... Uh, I, you know, oh, that's what we're calling it now. That's what we're calling it now. I, it, it, it's it's a nation. It's a nation of like ten three, people, three to ten people, yeah, <laughs> depending upon the weekly uh, output. Uh, anyway, it, it, hey, fantastic though. I mean, you know, learn so much. Uh, again, great conversation. Really loved hearing about, uh, you know, the the humble beginnings and and it really did for me sound very much like any one of us doing our own DIY project and then and then just moving on and and evolving and developing. Yeah. Yeah, he just I think the thing about Eric is he seems like he's a really good person. Yes. Seems like he's got a good heart. Absolutely. And 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 usually that happens, you know, when companies are successful, it's because the employees and the other people around them believe in it. And also I think he really has a great eye for quality. You know that's really evident in all the products, right? Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the reason for the quality of the products is him going around and and looking at looking at it and testing it out and using it, and also their uh, their marketing is is great. I mean, you look at any kind of filmmaking podcast or or a blog, they're they're always sponsored by Kessler. You know, right. their name is everywhere. Exactly. So you know they definitely are they've they've definitely got a presence. Um, and it was, it was actually pretty hard to, to get a hold of him. Oh, I'll bet. He, he, he's a busy guy. Yeah. He's a really busy guy. We, I mean, it was really great that he even offered to do it. And then, but, but we had like three or four reschedules because he's just a really busy guy. He had, you know, some plant power shut down or something right. one time and right. a couple other things happened. So yeah, but, it, but finally we did do it and he was really gracious and he really, um, it was a very heartfelt interview. It I was, really liked it. and yeah. uh, again, thank you. Let, let, let me uh, let me do this for Eric right now. Uh, you can reach him at kesslercrane.com is the website, and uh, you can take a look at all their stuff there. They got sliders, they got cranes, jibs, tripods, uh, motion controls, batteries. You name it, they got everything there. And it's really terrific quality stuff. And I think that, that that's what comes across the interview so much is that the, the, the pride he takes in sending out material that is going to last for a long time. Uh, unlike the things that I make, which last about a week and a half before they fall apart because I use chewing gum to keep them all together. Uh, again, so Kessler Crane... Dot com is where you will find these uh, fantastic products. And uh, Keith, thank you very much for um, for that terrific interview. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I, I love um, 
interviewing people like this and it just gives it's really great to have an opportunity to um to do this kind of stuff you know to talk to industry leaders and or people that are well known in in filmmaking um yeah i actually we actually talked a lot about um the second shooter in that in that interview and that was about a week or two weeks before it actually came out right um so and i on the side i asked him if i could get a an early copy and he said yeah how dare you do that (laughs) i used my connections right my my vast tech move nation connections (laughs) to (laughs) to manipulate an early early delivery out of him um but uh no he said he put me on a list it was really nice of him and so i got maybe one of the first ones like the first hundred or something um unfortunately I, i was so busy that i didn't really have a chance to use it um until pretty recently like a month and a half ago um so it kind of sat just collecting dust and looking nice for a little while but um and of course in the meantime there was like the black friday special on the second shooter and then there was the christmas special on the second shooter but <laughs> but that's okay um <laughs> that's what happens when you're an early adopter it's R- like you right, right. <laughs> you, but uh but i did have a chance to use it and it's it's really cool it's it's really a time saver and the reason they call it the second shooter is it's it's what your second cameraman might be doing if they were, if you had a second cameraman on a slider, okay, doing stuff. So, yeah. So I actually used it um, really for for a real shoot for the first time while I was interviewing somebody, and it's really easy to set up. Uh, it's got this pretty is- easy interface. Very simple. You set a a key. There's this there's this concept called keyframes. Okay. And it's actually a concept that's used in in film editing as well. Um, when you want to have have a move like a like like you know when you do a like when you have a a graphic that that kind of zooms from one side of the screen to the other or moves around you basically say at this point I want the the thing to be here and then at this point I want it to, in time I want it to be here and those are called the the keyframes oh okay so so it's based on a time and then the position in, at that period of time at that point in time so anyway so you basically set up uh up to 3 I think it's up to 3 keyframes so they have a starting point, which is usually the end of the slider, and then the middle point, which is another keyframe, and then the end point. And then you tell it how long you want all that to happen. So like I want it to go from the beginning of the slider to the end of the slider in uh, 30 seconds. And then in the middle, and then you can also aim it too. So I, I got the a version that has a turntable on it. So not only can it um, tilt up and down, but it can pan, oh, and it can nice. slide. Nice. Yeah, so... So it's pretty cool because then you can do these things where the camera is centered on the person's face, right? But it's moving, so the background's moving around them. Oh! But it's still centered, so it's a pretty it's a pretty cool and very professional effect. Well, and it's without having to pay a guy to do it. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Who will probably mess up yeah. and ruin and ruin the interview? <laughs> but but uh, but the thing that that's kind of cool too is you can loop it. So I had this camera. I had a, it was actually uh, my new A7S, the Sony A7S. I had that on the on the on the Kessler second shooter. It was just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, um, just continually recording this interview. And then I had my main camera um, pointed at the guy's face, kind of a portrait from maybe like shoulders up. That was like the close up. And then I had a wide, the GH4 and 4K on a wide view of him. So I had three cameras going. And then one of them had this movement. So when I was doing the edit, I could cut to that moving one. Oh, that, sound, worked, that sounds great. Yeah. 
It's it's really cool. So and, sixty and... minutes of you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think it's a little. It can be a little daunting when there's all this mechanical stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. And and but... and how are you keeping it out of frame and all this kind of stuff has got to be a little bit of a trick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it it worked out pretty well. I was really surprised how easy it was to program and get it to do what I wanted without screwing up. You know, it's I I really like the simplicity of of their interface and right. what they've done. It's a very simple interface. It's not like a touchscreen iPhone or anything. It's just a really kind of like an old fashioned um, text that you kind of scroll up and down with arrows and stuff. But it actually works really really well. I I I'm looking at it on the on the website and it's just this nice unit that looks like a garage door opener. It pretty much is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like you yeah. know, it's got up, down, left, right. You know, like two or three other buttons there and you know it doesn't seem like you can really mess up too much with the thing and uh but but yet it gives you those great results yeah it's and the menu system is really intuitive like i didn't really even study much about how to use it before i first used it you know i kind of made sure that it it worked i set it up once once before this and i just said okay but but i actually really used it for the first time in a real situation it worked really well um, you have to just be make sure that if you're using a shallow depth of field situation that you make sure the focus is 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 still things are still in focus during all the points of the True. movement because the distance does slightly change um, as it's going across right and if you have a super like razor thin depth of field you could get out of focus sure so you just have to make sure you double check the focus on all the different points but and then it was really another thing I real that then this is something that's an improvement over the last Kessler motors. It's a lot quieter. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. The previous motors would kind of make this grinding sound, which you could hear in an interview. It wasn't bad, but it was there. Um, this one was virtually slant. Like, the mics did not pick up the noise of this thing going back and forth. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I really, really, really like that part. Because then I, it's actually really useful. You can use it on an interview. Whereas before, you'd have to use it on stuff that didn't require sound. So, so thumbs up for the Kessler second shooter, then thumbs up for that if you're if you own any kind of kessler stuff already then it's a no-brainer cool excellent yeah Yeah. that is excellent no great great stuff uh so what are we going to do in the next episode rod hey uh you you know what i think because so much time has elapsed uh just like your time lapse videos that you make (laughs) uh we have got to we we wouldn't be doing tech move uh justice without touching on the explosion of 4K. Yeah, 4K is the buzzword. 4K is the buzzword. I mean, like, you know, I mean, for heaven's sakes, you're probably on your 12th 4K camera by now. And and I know I'm not that far (laughs) off. uh, But uh, we have got to talk about 4K and the world of, and I think that will take up pretty much the entire uh, next episode of Tech Move, don't you think? I mean, we've got so much to catch up on. It's 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 silly. It is silly. It's going to be at least one episode of 4K. Yeah. I I, I mean... I, but we'll, I, da- we'll downscale it to HD. Well, and <laughs> and not only that, but, you know, one of these days we're going to have to uh, talk about editing in 4K, too. Editing in 4K. Yep. Well, maybe we'll have a series of 4K. No, we probably will. We yeah. probably will. Well, well, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's put this one to bed, and uh, we want to thank 
our listening audience again for being patient with us. And thank you so much for listening to uh, episode 17 here. Again, before we go, want to thank Eric Kessler for his time uh, and all the great information he was able to share with us. Uh, and we will do it again for uh, our next time of 4K. So everyone be ready for that. Uh, I am Rod Louie, and uh, that is Keith Moreau. Keith, thanks so much for today. You're welcome, Rod. Thank you. And uh, we will do it again next time. So keep staying tuned right here on Tech Move. Tech Move.